You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 172, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of the podcast, Zach Romano joins me as co-host for an interview with Adam Schatz of Landlady. Last month, the band released their awesome, self-titled, fourth full-length album. And in addition to that release, Schatz has kept pretty busy over the last year with a variety of other projects, including penning several essays about Landlady and putting on his own Halloween radio play called Pumpkin. During our interview, we chatted all about the new record, including how recording an album compares to putting together a radio play like Pumpkin, his future plans for Landlady's popular annual holiday spectacular, how he was able to find other creative outlets outside of music during quarantine, and a whole lot more. Plus, Adam picked some awesome records from my record collection, including from local favorite Renata Zeiger and my all-time favorite band, Yola Tango. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look At My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look At My Records website, where you can read a awesome review of Landlady's new album written by today's co-host, Zach Romano. There, we also have playlists, premieres of new music, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right, another great episode of Look at My Records here with Adam Schatz of Landlady and Zach Romano is co-hosting. Hey. Also, How's everybody hey. Yes. doing? Good, good. <laughs> yeah, really not good. too bad, not too bad. Adam, before we started recording you were telling me you just moved to vermont how's that been going it's great it's beautiful here the air is good the air is clean it like wants you around (laughs) like the air and also the state just wants you around i've had like really incredible experiences at the post office and the dmv and all these things that new york sort of trained you trained you into thinking we're like hell on earth but it's actually like no it's just the circumstances that made the people mad which then made your experience there bad so it's i'm (laughs) i'm 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 having a very good good time here it's still pretty new but it's it's exciting was this something was this something you've been planning for a while or is this kind of a pandemic throwing my hands up no. Gotta go type thing. Yeah, I haven't planned anything ever. It because <laughs> I've I've been in New York for so long, and that city just like keeps you there. Especially when you play music and a lot of music with a lot of different people. There's nowhere else like it. It's really, it's just it, and so it kind of has a hold on you. And but I'd always wanted some sort of more fresh air environment to set up a recording situation to like go with people to work on things and we i mean we made our last record in a 
place like that. And it's just, it's a really wonderful, creative space. But then, yeah, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I had a tour cancel and my my apartment nor my partner's apartment were suitable for us to be there together, like all the time. So we pretty quickly left the city, spent a bunch of time with my mom in Cape Cod, spent the summer in Chapel Hill, which like all of that actually weirdly got us used to being in places where you have to drive 10 minutes for something. And yeah. like that, we're like, that's not a problem. And it isn't. It's just like, if you're going to go grocery shopping, you know, that's how far it's going to be. And then you, you get in the zone, but the trade-off is then you can like breathe the air. Feel good about breathing the air. We spent a week here over the summer and just like, I mean, we're, we're both from New England. And so there's just something magic about Vermont and it made sense. And so we kind of jumped on it. Congrats on uh, escaping the orbit. It's okay. It's good. It's really exciting. We have no friends here, so that'll have to change. And it's also like, more than anything, it's really great to have something to like work on. So you're like in a new you, house. You mean like the house or the recording studio? All, no, yeah, all of it. We're studios a ways away, but I have a space I am able to like set up in. It, you know, I haven't had like a room with a door to record <laughs> in for over a year. So that's really nice. Um, but it's like, yeah, just, yeah, all of it. House stuff, living stuff, it just like it, painting, it, it all feels good. And then even with putting the record out now, it's like, again, I can't. I can't stress enough how exciting it is to go to my post office to ship out these LPs. It's a really nice uh, small post office. Yeah, playing music in a place with windows must be a, a, a real change. Well, I'll tell you this. I've always had surprisingly high standards for myself. So I've always had, in New York, every apartment I've had has had a space to make music in. In the beginning, I was often sleeping in the basement. But the last handful of years i've had a recording studio with a few friends in ditmas park and it's actually like weeks after i moved in january we learned that it's going away the space is going away but it's in an old storefront so there's like full glass front we frosted the glass so you can't see through it but it's like nothing but natural light and a really amazing wow I mean, it makes all the difference. It just like having natural light is, yeah, it's a one of a kind space. It, it was a really special thing. And we did, I produced a handful of things there over the past couple of years. We didn't do the basic tracking for the landlady record there because I just wanted a place where we could all go and stay and not have to go back to our homes every night. But we, I mean, I did all my like production and most of the mixing and all, all sorts of things happened in that space. That sounds lovely. It is. It is a lovely memory. Totally. And congrats on the release of the record. It's self-titled. It was cool to see you did the Mm -hmm. whole crowdfunding thing through Bandcamp. Uh, Was that always the plan? And what was that like doing that? I have to like point you back to the thing earlier I said about plans. (laughs) Um, There wasn't... There No, there wasn't a plan. The plan... Yeah. Almost anytime anyone self-releases a record, you can assume the plan was to get a label to put it out and no one would do it. I would say roughly 100% of the time, that's what you can assume. Unless it's Wilco, 
and more bands should be doing it the way they do it, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of infrastructure. And, you know, again, you have to go to the post office. So, <laughs> yeah, we tried to, you know, quote unquote, shop it around a word that means nothing anymore. And it uh, didn't get any bites. And then the pandemic was hitting anyways. And I was just like, I could not imagine a good time to put out the music. So I sort of spent a bunch of last year. I mean, it was mixed in January. So it was finished for all of yeah. last year. And in like March, reached out to the animator who made our Supernova video and then the album artwork evolved out of that so i was able to spend a bunch of time working with a different designer on that that all kind of at the same time was working on the landlady land website where i wanted to build a place where things we made could live that weren't like required to be viewed next to a bunch of icons of other content that wasn't ours so i was grateful for the time to just like work at my own speed and at some point last year was like, yeah, the Bandcamp thing is kind of the only way to do it because I didn't want overhead. I didn't want to deal with vinyl overhead. I mean, I'm still paying myself back for the last record. So as boring as that is, it's true. And um, I, so I sort of waited until the election because my brain just couldn't fathom like when a good time to put music out would be. And then that happened and things were relatively better feeling and I just picked a random date. I was like, okay, we'll, we'll do the campaign. We'll do it in December when I think not that many people will be doing things. So maybe we can get some energy going and it, it worked, which is really wonderful. Actually. Tell me about the last year for you. I thought it was interesting because I know musicians have had a really difficult time adjusting to the circumstances of the pandemic. And you kind of go into that in these different essays you wrote. But then at a certain point, it seems as if you found these different creative outlets to explore. I thought the thing you did around Halloween, the pumpkin Halloween radio play was really cool. The long form essay that you wrote about Landlady and the talk house piece that you also wrote. You just posted a funny sketch video today with the sales mm -hmm. rep person. So so how did you... Yes, Mary yeah, Kondo, sure. It was really funny. So what was that adjustment period for you like? I'm, I know realizing there's no live music must have been a big shock for you as it was for a lot of musicians, but you did seem to kind of take the opportunity to explore a lot of non-music outlets. Yeah, I mean, my brain is my brain and I always have a big list of things I want to be working on and doing. And so the challenge with the pandemic for everyone, I think, was like, I think a lot of people have those lists, but the reality of the state of the world is such a bummer that it's like, first you have to find a way to overcome even that yeah. to be able to like make something. And I think I'm just fortunate for my chemical balance to even be able to do that. But it took a while. I mean, it's like the first half of the year. It's, you know, it's what I got into in the New York Times essay I did mm -hmm. about Randy Newman, because it's just like, yeah, I could, I could learn someone else's song. That was pretty much it. I could just like focus on that. And it's still... It had the wellness aspect, because I knew I was practicing, and I knew I was improving, and that felt really good. But 
the notion of like writing anything, writing a song of my own was really, I mean, I, I'm still just getting back into doing that because I have trouble writing new songs until the old ones are released. Um, yeah, I, I saw that you mentioned that in the New York Times piece, um, and, and that kind of piqued my curiosity. Uh, would you want to talk a little bit more about why that is, do you think? Well, because it's a, it's a bummer. It's like I need, I need positive feedback, like big time. Um, and that's, yeah, and that's one <laughs> of the it. reasons why not playing shows is such yeah. a drag. Cause it's like, that's the quickest, that's, that's how you mainline it. It's you do a thing. People say, Hey, good job. Great. Whereas like even putting out an album, it's just not there. And that happens at every level. Cause I have friends who are much more successful than I, but you still, it's an unquenchable hunger and that, like, the longer you do it, that hunger doesn't go away. And then, can you quench a hunger? It's always with thirst, but I feel like it should go for both. <laughs> Satiate. No, I'm going to say it. I think right? you can no. quench anything. Because why does quench? <laughs> I feel like it's used because maybe it rhymes with drench. So they think it has to be like a... It's kind of like a yeah, squishy yeah, liquid Yeah, they sound. think it's just liquid, but I think that's sort of an accidental compartmentalization in our language so i'm gonna i'm gonna reclaim quench so yeah unquenchable hunger for feedback press whatever version of it is and then at the same time the like state of the industry and media relating to the industry goes the other way where it's just like you're it's never going to be enough and you really only get you get that jolt from a live experience. You don't get it from someone tweeting, Hey, I like your album. And actually if you do get a little buzz from that, then you also are aware of the huge void of everyone not tweeting that they like your album. And it takes, (laughs) it takes literally that much time to get from there to there. And then you're like, I'm sad. So (laughs) if nothing else, yeah, I have a, I have a pretty hyperactive brain and it allows me to come up with a lot of ideas. And over the years, just like tell myself I'm allowed to do all these things if I want to make them. So I have a big list. And then when I have the time, I can chip away at that stuff. The pumpkin, the Halloween musical radio play was a script I wrote in 2018 and was, it was getting close to Halloween and I was like, all right, I'll do it. Oh no, I guess I wrote it in 2019 and it was getting close to Halloween as the script was getting finished. And I was thinking, okay, 2020, I'll just wait and put it out in 2020 when I'll have more time to work on the songs. And then it became July and I was like, oh fuck, if I don't do this like right now, I'm never going to do it. But it also lined up perfectly with like me really not wanting to spend a bunch more months thinking about how I'm going to release the Landlady record. So instead it was like truly a full-time job of August, September, October, you know, producing that thing, roping a couple people into helping me, writing all the music in that time period. None of it was written. Um, and then recording voiceover with like, you know, 20 different people. And it was, it was so fun. I mean, doing anything other than like promoting the record is fun, which is why the like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is why there's like a sketch today of like a fake landlady shareholders meeting. Cause I'm like, this is what I would rather do. I would rather make these <laughs> fake commercials starring a weird Jewish salesman named Murray Kondo, but that it's all organic and lovely. Cause I met Justin Michael who plays Murray 
I met him through doing Pumpkin, and he did all these amazing voices, like at a Simpsons level caliber. And as soon as we were done recording, I was like, hey, I have this other idea. Like, are you interested in doing it for free? And then we just, you know, it's, I think everyone I worked with on Pumpkin was ultimately like really too grateful to me for giving them something to do for truly no uh, compensation. And I was equally wowed to just get to work with people. So any version of connectivity feels really good. And then in terms of the writing stuff, like essay writing and working on that, that actually is such a good solo activity. Whereas like playing music isn't for me. I can practice, I can make weird synthesizer songs, but it's really a cheap substitute for doing it with one or more people. If people want to see, or before we move on, if, if people want to see or listen to that pumpkin, um, that pumpkin musical, is, is that yeah, available so anywhere it came still? Out, it came out on Stitcher Premium. Stitcher is a podcast network, and they have a yeah. premium thing where you subscribe, which I was already, I had already subscribed, actually, because I kind of got into that through Earwolf. So it's, you know, it's for fans of, like, comedy and improv comedy podcasts. So that's that's how you get it if you pay for it. You can do a free trial for one month and definitely hear it in that period of time. So you can do that. Um, and if you really don't want to do that, you can write to me and I'll, I'll find another way for you to hear it. But <laughs> All right, I am, cool. yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I'm actually, I'm working on another series for them now that will That's exciting. certainly not, not be any awesome. less ridiculous. What was it like putting something like that together, say compared with, uh, recording a record. Yeah. Well, I'd done it once before, um, for, and I think I did it in lieu. This was in 2018 in normally I've done a big, uh, holiday show called the landlady holiday spectacular. Yeah. Oh man. We, we've been to so many, uh, we've been there several years. Uh, really, uh, big fan of that <laughs> we, we've had so yeah, much fun a... over the years at those gigs i just wanted to say that no it means a going. lot to me and those are <laughs> as i like those shows really like fully encompass what again like the standards i hold myself to for what like i think a show should be of just like yeah and it's pretty you know it it's similar to the, how we build our records too which is just like engaging all the way through surprising not contrived but like still full of humor and all these things um i have a real dream and wish because as i you know you take the year and a half off touring and then you think about what touring was like and it's like well that wasn't so great either so i really for many years i've wanted to do a holiday spectacular tour this year I might try to do it if I can get everyone on board, but it's going to be, I need to find some partners and I need to maybe like almost pre-sell the whole thing before we do it. Cause I want to do it in like event halls and places. Like I don't want to do it yeah. in, in bars. Um, but it's great to hear that. Cause the, yeah, those shows mean a lot to me and similarly are like, unbelievable, just insane amounts of work for something that only happens once. And there is actually, but were you at the one where we did the Christmas play? I don't think so. Because there was one. You might, you might have even pushed it. You might have even pushed it out of your memory because it really didn't work. 
Yeah, there's a lot going it was pretty on. In all these. It was pretty funny to me, but I had written like all these scenes that would happen in between when all the bands played. Yeah, it was it was interspersed yeah, yeah, yeah. between the bands. Yes. I think yeah. we were um, that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So that was kind of draft one, and I was like, all right, it is. I have so much fun like writing these things, but that format didn't work great. And then there was one in 2018. We didn't do it. We didn't do a spectacular because people too much of my band wasn't available and I maybe had another reason why I just was out of steam. So instead I did something that was way more work and wrote and recorded the first radio play, which is called the holiday party. And that you can find that on Bandcamp If you go to stories from landladyland.bandcamp.com. And that is an hour long musical radio play set at a holiday party and I liked doing it because I was like well this will live forever then this is going to be an insane amount of work like it always is but at least this is something permanent that people can hear and it was just an excuse to work with a bunch of comedy people I loved and connect them with a bunch of music people and it's such a wild cast because I have um you know Claire O'Kane and then Yoni Wolf from Y and then this the one of the dad characters is played by um Stephen Page from the Bare Naked Ladies, and I just love that yeah, I can have nice. like a Bare Naked Lady, and then Aaron from Buke and Gase, <laughs> and then Star Busby, and then Tim Kalpakis, and all these people kind of floating around in the same space. So that was so much fun, and nearly killed me. And I really got it done on like December twenty fourth, so almost no one heard it, anyways. And then, <laughs> so for Pumpkin, I was like, this time's going to be different. And it was different in a few ways, because also with the holiday party, I I drove around recording everyone. There was no version of, like, video chat. I mean, before last year, you couldn't pay me to do a video chat. I didn't, like, I would never FaceTime family. There was no version of it that I enjoyed or saw any, like, productive truth to. And for Pumpkin, it made it so easy to record everyone and assemble. Yeah. And then for, like, doing press for a record, now I can do all these podcasts that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise but yeah comparing putting the radio play together com- like to making an album is it's a lot less organic because everything is written in advance and then I'm recording most people separately so then I have to lay everyone's dialogue yeah. in one at a time and it's unbelievably tedious but then it lets me be like really controlling with the timing of the thing um so in some ways it's i mean it's way more work in that there's like all that tedious work to do but then i still take it way less seriously than making my art so i really just want it to be as funny and ridiculous as possible and that lets me use just a whole other part of my brain but a pretty omnipresent part of my brain. God, that, that's an interesting way you, you put it. So the music is your art and, and this is bucketed somewhere I else? I mean, only... It's like... Yeah, it, it. I know it'll be viewed through a different lens. You, um, Got it. But I try not to... The, yeah, call it... It is, it is art, but it is still... I, I make damn sure that when I make a landlady record or any sort of music that there's enough personality from me you know there's I'm never going to be putting on airs I want it to I want it to feel like me I want it to to be 
authentic and truthful, which means there's humor and means there's space and all that, all that stuff. So getting to, to the record a, a little bit now, mm-hmm. you know, Landlady's been a project for over a decade now. Uh, what's changed as far as the way you approach making a record now as compared to the very beginning? What's nice is each one has been different and they've been so spaced out that they're like, I've ultimately had a lot of time to learn between each one in a bunch of ways. Uh, the lineup has always changed a little from record to record. Um, but this most recent album is the touring version of the band. This is the version of the band that's really been road tested the most and is the, you know, the most improvisatory and just has that, has that connective tissue that no other version had. Cause the first album we really had only played New York shows. We had never toured and that I recorded in my basement and we just kind of pieced together and is an amazing like document of that time for me. But I also sound really young. And then the second one was, you know, new couple different people, more professional studio setup. And starting with that second album, I worked with my friend Jake Aaron, who he didn't engineer that one, but he didn't mix it. And he and I grew up together. We grew up down the street from each other. And he was into recording from a really young age. So at like age 14, he brought his desktop computer down the street and recorded my band. And we did a bunch of things in high school together. And then he went to Wesleyan and became a super gifted and professional mixing and recording engineer and has worked with Jamie Liddell and Grizzly Bear and all sorts of big wigs. Wow, cool. And for whatever reason, we didn't do anything together all throughout college. And then at some point I was like, this is dumb. We should, let's just do it. And so I've, ever since then, we've, every landlady record has been done with him. And what's great is I can just, you know, whenever we mix, I'm always there and I'm asking tons and tons of questions. And then I go back to my home studio setup, whatever it is, and just kind of doof around and learn a bunch until the next time. So every record we've made, I know more about what to do. And it's not just about what to do technically, but also just how to like carry out my creative instincts from a production standpoint. And for The World is a Loud Place, our second to last album, that we spend a really long time mixing that. And we worked incredibly hard to get it to sound as good as it does but I was making a lot of production decisions while we were mixing and Jake would kind of remind me like, well, that like, you should know that that's production. That's not mixing. And what he was sort of telling me in so many words was like, that can happen first. It doesn't have to happen at the same stage. And it was a lot of like choosing where to pan certain elements, like the arranging process of producing for me, which is just like, making, you know, some like really aggressive commitments to when you're going to take things away and when you're going to add things in and stuff like that. And so for this newest album, I really had, you know, we had just six days in the Outlier Inn studio in upstate New York with the full band. And it was the first time the band had recorded without 
really rehearsing the songs in advance. I sent everyone demos, but we just like timing wise, we didn't have the ability to do it. And I had been so nervous about that in the past because you don't want to just like waste time. But it ended up being so great because the arrangements we sort of spontaneously arrived at in the studio all turned out so nice. And even though it often meant we were spending an hour just like playing the song in headphones in the studio while we were sort of learning it together, that allowed Jake to like really hone the sounds in for every song and give him time to do that. And it also weirdly let us get comfortable in the studio setting in headphones. Even if you're tracking live together, there's an immediate deflation as soon as you like are wearing headphones because they connect you, but they also really separate you. And it just takes a second to get, get that energy equilibrium, you know, back on track. So we just had six days doing that. And then when all the basics were recorded, I spent a bunch of the following year. That was 2019. So then I spent a bunch of 2019 at my studio in the storefront in Ditmas Park doing production and overdubs and mixing so that when Jake and I got together to mix last January, it was just four days. And I think the world is a loud place was like 20 days or something, (laughs) something ridiculous, like a day and a half per song. And this one I had just a much, I was so much more aware of how to make it how I wanted it. And then going back to Jake, I mean, because he was there for the tracking so much, so much of our like mind melding happened at that stage anyways, of just like, you know, it's just a philosophy of if you can get the sound sounding really good going in, then there's nothing to fix when you're mixing. It's just like you're only making creative choices at that point because between the arrangement and the smartness of how you've recorded it, so much of the balance has already been struck. Yeah, and you wrote the record, the songs on the record, while you were in Europe, right? Well, Did I read that correctly? No, we we had a good like training period where I had written I had written a bunch of songs but a lot of them weren't finished. And I think that's also something that was new. Usually I try to get the song quote unquote finished, at least in terms of like lyrics and chords so that then I can bring it to the band and really just not waste anyone's time where it's like, if we're all together, I want us to know that the song is worth doing and then we can, you know, dissect and improve upon it together. Cause it always hits a, few more levels of arranging once it reaches the band. But in Europe, again, I think we just hadn't had that much time to get together that year. And there were a few festivals that we were booked on, and I kind of just tried to figure out a way for us to have essentially a writing retreat while we were over there. And so I found, through a friend of a friend, this guy named Ollie, who has a venue in uh, Bavaria, in the town of, I think the venue's in Bad Kotsting, and his house is in Viktosh, which was 20 minutes away. And his house was this great-looking old house full of, like, old crap, and all of his records. He was a DJ, and he had he collected these, um, like, 70s disco consoles that never made it to the U.S. <laughs> They're only in Europe. 
but it's like the turntables and the mixer all built into this crazy like futuristic plastic housing um i'll find pictures and send them to you because they were like all over his house (laughs) and in the venue so we would get up and he would make us breakfast and then we would he'd drive us to work and we would go to his venue and just like work all day and work on the songs but at the end of that i think it was five days and we i mean at the end of that supernova was the only song that was like done and all the other ones maybe like five or six other songs on the record we had like started and i just had tons of like you know zoom recordings for my handheld recorder of us playing them so that i could go back home and take them a step further but so much of what we actually played arrangement wise didn't come from those days it was more just like getting familiar with the harmony and almost showing me a bunch of ways the song shouldn't be because sometimes it's like you know usually your first instinct is to overplay so i have a lot of versions of us doing things that weren't quite the right instinct which then lets me say okay what if we do exactly not this and then everyone's next choice is usually the absolute best one but that i mean it was so special just to be there working on the songs and then yeah it just gave us a little jump start for when we got to the studio but it was still really all pretty unknown when we you know set up and started recording so have these songs not been played live to an audience at all yet we did a residency at the end of september of 2019 so we we tracked these in the beginning of 2019 and then september of 2019 we did three shows three weeks in a row at the venue new blue their new location on avenue c um and that was an excuse for us to just play a bunch of shows when everyone was around and also work out some of this new material so i think five of the songs we did at those shows we'd already Sunshine had been in the set for a while already, even on the last tour. And then, yeah, we were doing Supernova in Europe. So then what else did we do at those shows? We did The Meteor, we did AM Radio, we did Tooth and Nail. I think we tried Western Divide at one of them. Didn't go great. Um, That might be it. And then we did another song that isn't even on the album, but I had, but I thought it was maybe going to make it, and then we never recorded a version of it that felt right. So that'll be on the next one. But it is like it was the show opener at all those shows. I was like, this is definitely this song is strong enough to be the opener. We should open all of our shows with this, but it it is not on the album. So people who were at those shows got to hear them. Did you just think it didn't fit on the record? No, I wrote it after we recorded. So we had recorded all the like band songs. And then there's a few of the really short, sort of interstitial songs on the album. But the only one of those that was really recorded after was Western Divide, I think. I don't think we recorded any of those vocals in... um, at outlier but like take the hint we did and there was a a few other ones but i had a few other songs that i thought could also serve that purpose of being like 
more interstitial or maybe more like loosely recorded and they started to sound like demos to me and I realized the record didn't need them. Yeah, so I, I liked the placement of those kind of shorter interstitial songs. Lights Out, uh, Western Divide, Take the Hint as, as well, Take the Hint is in the beginning. Were those types of songs a lot of times talking to artists, these type of shorter interstitial songs, sometimes they're instrumental, sometimes they're not. Did you find that you wrote them in conjunction with the surrounding songs and then felt, oh, this is kind of something that's a little separate and could flow into the next song? The I never thought about, no, I never thought about like how they would relate to each other which is why it's fun when they do. Like now Western Divide yeah. drops you right into Rule of Thumb and that works yeah. so well that I sort of can't imagine us like not doing that at a show. That sort of is just like how it should be and that's just the new rule and that's okay. Um, and then all the other ones, they just sort of happen and it's sort of also about like when I'm going through voice memos and old recordings of ideas really allowing the song to be what it wants to be. So take the hint can be one minute long, but it can still be a song and not a throwaway. And I think often yeah. you hear interstitial things and sometimes it really seems like it's something that wasn't good enough to be a song, but they wanted to put it in there anyways. And with the ones that made the record, I really wanted it to, to stand up to the, to what it is, which is, I mean, this is also, this is the first record, Landlady record, I've sequenced myself, I think, because the last two the label did, and they we the, oh, wow. the folks who run home tapes are just like, I'd trust them with anything, and they really yeah. have an amazing instinct for that sort of thing. And so when, you know, Sarah at home tapes offers to sequence your record you say yes and it was honestly such a relief because it's just like well great one less thing i have to like wonder if i'm doing a good job at and for this whole process on this album it was i mean truly just like felt like taking the training wheels off and okay i learned so much from watching the home tapes people do things and i you know maybe i can do it and part of that also comes with then trusting other people to do their thing. So when you're working with a visual designer or someone making a video and anything like that, knowing when to take a step back and just let them make what they make rather than interfere too much too early on, because usually that just makes a mess and keeps you from getting to like an incredible end product. What are some things you were thinking about when sequencing the record? Because it is the type of process that you could definitely pour over really closely and get into the intricacies of it and spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, what did you think about when you were sequencing the record? What did you, how did you want the record to flow? I have no idea. I think I went into a fugue state because when I think about it now, I'm just like, I don't know why I made those choices. There, When we recorded The Meteor, in the studio, Ryan our bass player was like, that's the opener. That's like definitely the album opener. And we were all like, yeah, you're right. Cause it just like starts steadily. The drums sound amazing. There's a thing about drum sounds when you're recording that like, even if you never touch 
the microphones after you set them up, different songs will have different drum sounds and some will sound better than others and you don't know why. And there's lots of reasons why in retrospect, but that's boring to talk about. But that song, The Meteor, we're just like, I mean, well, one reason I will say is as soon as you add any other instrument, then it will, you lose part of the frequency range. So it's like, as soon as you add a strumming guitar on top of amazing sounding drums, you're going to like suddenly lose a lot of space. And the space is what makes sound sound good. And the meteor starts with just drums alone. And that sounded too good to not put first. Um, and it felt like a strong opener. The smart way to sequence a record is to put all your strong songs early. But I still, again, I if you want to tell yourself that the music you make is art, then you also tell yourself that you don't have to do that. So I maybe uh, should have done more of that. And I'm not, I don't, I don't know. Songs at the beginning are good too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, they're all good to me. So I can't, uh, I truly can't, uh, I truly can't say, and I'm actually pretty bad at anticipating like what people will latch on to. So even in terms of like picking singles, which again, in this day and age is really just like what songs go on Spotify first before the album comes out. Um, But I had a, you know, someone I was working with in digital distribution who does all those things. And I I mostly just followed his lead on it. And he was he was kind of picking the rockers, anyways. I I knew I wanted Meteor. Oh no, but that didn't come out first. Supernova usually it came was out first, right? yeah, yeah, and that tended to be everyone's song that they said stuck with them. So I was happy to put that out, even though it was kind of slow and kind of a bummer. It like really it was a good like it's a good foreboding song for the record to come, which is just like. There's going to be hooks, but there's going to be like a pretty serious sonic journey and it's still going to be fun, but it's also going to be raw in a way that I think maybe the world is a loud place never quite got as raw. And it, uh, yeah. So yeah, I think we did that and then meteor and then AM radio, which is like maybe probably the closest to like a radio hit song we'd have on the album, which is still like, it's not, but it, in now that the record's out, people are really grabbing onto that one, which is great. Great track. Totally. Yeah. That's the one probably that's uh, appeared in my head the most since cool. writing the review. That means a lot. And that was a very sweet review, Zach. You <laughs> wrote, it was really, really kind and, and attentive and I, I appreciate it. Oh yeah. Well, thanks for putting the thing out there that let me do it. Yeah, and thank you for letting me pay you such a, you know, a, a moderate bribe to write it. Because, I mean, a lot of writers, <laughs> they ask for a lot. They ask for way more than I can. And you wouldn't believe all the people I'm kind of on the hook for, for just like, you know, their sub stacks. I got a, I got like nine, I got yeah, $90,000 in, in various crypto tied up in different indie music writers <laughs> sub stacks. I can't begin to tell you. So the fact that you just, you know... Yeah, and, and, and compared to that, the role of the leaf pile in next year's Halloween play really, really isn't that much. <laughs> you were making a big mistake if you think you're going to be uh, out, if you think I'm going to forget that you said that. <laughs> I, will, I will cast you as a leaf pile. I do, in in Pumpkin, My I had my friend Thomas, um, who 
is also, I, I went to school with him and he's like, we've done a bunch of silly music things together, but then he's also, he's so talented and he played drums in the band Frog for a long time. If you know Frog, Frog are very good. Um, but in the like earliest um, holiday play that was at the Spectacular, he played a tree. And then in Pumpkin, I had him also <laughs> play a tree, which I really am. Uh, those are the things that I only do for nice. myself. Um, another song that people are grabbing a lot, at least in terms of them like shouting it out on social media or putting it on playlists, actually, is Molly Pitcher, which is it makes song, me yeah. it makes me so psyched because I mean that was never going to be a single because it's really long, but it is a song I love. And it's one that we've never played live before that like the only time we've done it was in the studio like that. Um, and the bridge, a lot of great, just organic material came in the moment for that. The whole like strange bridge, instrumental bridge. I think I even wrote those chords like at the <laughs> piano in the studio and the type of thing that you like hear happens, but has never actually happened. It happened. And that was great. And I think it happened because we also made the space for it where it's like, okay, if you're going to, I always talk about when producing records and, and events and all these things, I just, I use the phrase stack the deck a lot because it's really just about like creating, creating the like highest statistical likelihood for greatness to happen. And that's still leaving the door open for spontaneity. And that song in particular just became something so much more the second the band grabbed hold of it. Um, and so I think it's cool that people are liking it. I think it's also because I put it early in the album in terms of, um, you know, I put categorically that song and Nowhere to Hide, I kind of have in a similar, they feel like siblings to me kind of. And that Molly Putcher went early, Nowhere to Hide went later in the album. And I'm getting much fewer comments on that one. So I think that's part of it, which is the, that's just like brain science. I, I'm a musician. I love records. And there are so many albums that I claim to love where the like last three tracks are still like, I maybe even forget they're there. It took me so long to hear <laughs> totally. the final song of Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets. And it's the titular <laughs> song. And it's maybe yeah. the best song. It's like so incredible. <laughs> and I was driving around on tour with another band and we were driving and we were in Pittsburgh and that song came on. We listened to the whole album and that song came on and I was like, whoa, this is like, this is really good. And then we just started listening to it over and over and over again. And it's a, it's a fond memory. It's cool because I feel like Molly Pitcher kind of alludes to some of the things that you talk about in the essay that you wrote about experiencing music in cars and things like that, which I thought was really cool because I love listening to music in cars too. I love buying used CDs and like listening to a record that I've never heard before uh, in a car or a van. What do you think is so makes it such a special experience to listen to music in a car and enjoy music while driving. I think it's a similar thing to 
why like the best way to listen to a record is also like in headphones while you walk around because it just like immediately it just makes your life a movie all of a sudden which is really cool and i think same in a car it's like the the act of going from point a to point b is like totally transformed when you have a soundtrack that's really working especially if you can turn it up really loud especially if you can appreciate it with other people it's just kind of a cosmic thing and older cars sound really good i rented a car recently and it was like so horrible what (laughs) just i don't know what they've done differently but it's probably a digital conversion thing that for whatever reason my uh yeah my 96 toyota sounded good my 2004 toyota still sounds good it's just uh it's a thing yeah i I feel like listening to music actively is kind of rarer than you think it is you're always kind of you you always put it on while you're doing something else and and driving is an active activity but it's not one that in many cases requires a huge amount of concentration so you can sort of listen more actively than you can in in many other contexts while you're driving or while you're walking keep that in mind if i see you on the road and kind of give you maybe (laughs) give you maybe six cars lengths just in case you're uh in the zone but it's true um and you can, uh, yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's so many versions of the thing. It really, um, yeah, there's, there's a, some of the Molly Pitcher lyrics really do like go back to like touring with my first band and just doing, yeah. doing that thing and finding a way to write about that. That doesn't feel lame. Cause it's like songs about being in a band are almost <laughs> always like very bad. And so it was just like, can I, and that's, I mean, that's what I liked about putting out an essay that was sort of a sibling to the album, but where I'm not writing yeah. about any of the songs, because mm-hmm. then I can get explicit about things, and in the songs I can still stay kind of vague and poetic, and I can have my cake and eat it too. So going for a self-titled on the fourth album feels kind of statement-y. Was, was that meant yeah, to the be? State, a- the statement is I couldn't think of a better title. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. But it, again, it became... It all... Everything... Again, if you like, just leave the door open for things to happen and influence each other... Because I think I was already considering self-titled as being the way to go. Cause I just didn't have my joke name for it that I didn't have the guts to do was landlady's fourth best album where there's a, com- <laughs> where there's a comma in between fourth and best. And again, that's like, it's the exactly why the landlady still goes in the art category. Cause I'm like, I couldn't do it. I did make the private SoundCloud link is labeled that, but in at the end of the video for supernova, I mean the, a bunch of it, the animator Case Jernigan did, we talked about sort of world building and environments and he followed a bunch of his own instincts on, you know, sort of like secret society things and ancient beings and aliens and who knows what else. It's it's really cosmic and wonderful. But then at like the last quarter of the video, the band shows up and he made these like paper cutout versions of us, which wasn't something we had talked about. It definitely wouldn't have been something I would have asked for. And if he had proposed it, I probably would have shut it down. Been like, no, that's weird. I I don't feel comfortable with it. 
or whatever reason, whatever wrong reason. And then I finally saw the thing and kind of took a breath and was like, this is great. And this is special and this is weird and lived with it a bit longer and then asked him if he would create an album cover with those versions of us. And then I worked with my designer, Annette Wong, to do the lettering and then sort of pull all the elements from the video and turn it into more line drawings and things that we could use for merch and, and just like future iconography and really try to just like build, build a visual world around this record in the same way that we did with the one before. Um, so yeah, the cell by the end of the process, calling the landlady album landlady where the cover is landlady is like, it's the best thing ever. I couldn't have picked a better, better one to do it for, but it was all very much, um, just cause I didn't think of anything better. And I think I already have a title for the next album. So we're back in business, baby. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, something that I wanted to ask you as far as, um, mortality is definitely a theme that I feel like has come up on every landlady record sure. uh, more than once. Uh, your second record, I think of upright behavior, um, the one after that songs like cadaver and above ground and it definitely works its way in to this album as well on supernova and bulldozer uh, i'm curious for just your perspective of why, why do you think that theme tends to make its way into uh, so many of your songs it is it is this thing where if i'm writing it again i'm like can i really do it again and the answer is always yes, because it's like it's always there. And most people write songs about just a couple things. So I'm like, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not make my thing this? Because it's also what you're always thinking about. And you can kind of relate everything to it, to life and death. So if you can do that in a way that doesn't feel like you're beating people over the head with it. I don't know. I try... Yeah, I I try not to overthink it because when I overthink it, it gets bad. But you're absolutely right. That's like, it's an obvious through line. And that might just be the deal. That might just be what happens on Landlady Records. It's like we kind of dip our toe into that pool every time. And it'll be... What's cool about it is we all keep growing and changing. So if nothing else, the perspective is going to shift and my voice will sound a little different and the music will change. And so, you know, it's never going to be a bummer, but it is going to be a, it'll be like a warm blanket, just kind of smothering you every time. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering how much your own uh, near death experience that you describe in the essay when you you were on tour and the, the, the van kind of spun off the road and you were talking about how it, perfectly mirrored the climax of Harvey Danger's flagpole Siddha. Uh, did that kind of make you think about it more and revisit it more in your music in on this record or future songs you're writing? No, because it was, you know, you can't do... I had already, like, gone the distance. and Like, I've already written such, yeah. like, extreme life and death songs I mean, the song Dying Day is on, like, our second album. Like, I'm young then. Yeah. So if I'm already doing that then, 
then it'll be like funny that I keep singing that song on tour, even as I age. I appreciate that context, but I don't think I can get any more extreme than I have with those concepts. And if anything, I'm trying to like hone in and get more subtle or like find new nooks and crannies that I can live in for a song. If it's still going to like touch upon these universal elements. Um, yeah, I think the car crash song I've put into bulldozer, but that song is yeah. also about a bunch of other things. So it's sort of, yeah. I was like, I know it needs a lot to, going on in that track. Yeah, yeah. That one's bonko. And I'm really, we, <laughs> I, it's an, another thing. I was like, that's such a good last song. So I want to make it the last song, but I also yeah. love it. So I want other people to hear it. And I think, I mean, that's one thing about streaming now is it's like people still lean towards the beginning of a record. You can see it in your analytics. It's like those last songs almost never get the same amount of love, but it's easier to, to skip around than it is on, on the CD. Cause you just don't, uh, you don't do it in the same way. But, um, yeah, I think the answer is I should probably make my album shorter and then people will get to the end sooner. And I say it every time and I don't, but maybe if I, if I really want to like hold myself to the fire and put out our next one, quicker than the last ones have come out then i think it'll just have to be shorter <laughs> yeah all right now we're gonna play a song from landlady's brand new record it's self-titled as we've mentioned we're gonna play the first track the meteor
All right, we're back. We heard the first track from Landlady's brand new self-titled record. The song is called The Meteor, and you can get yourself a copy on vinyl via landlady.bandcamp.com. Now, Adam picked some records from my record collection. We're going to talk about them. Oh, sure. I had fun clicking through... uh... I mean, I really... I looked at every single record you owned, and I was like, "Oh, all right. wow, yeah, that's it is a lot." People lot. people don't wild. really do that. No. Sometimes they're like, "Oh, I forgot," so then <laughs> they're like, "Oh, let me look through this on the first page." Yeah, you know? they're all the first page. Yeah. So you you started off with, and I thought, by the way, I love the God only knows reference in Molly Pitcher. Sure. Of course, that really jumped out yeah and here we've got i was made to love her by the beach boys off of wild honey this is a great song tell me a little bit about why you love this song and why you picked it well it's it's just awesome hearing the beach boys do stevie wonder it's just such a cool take on it and it's also like it's also one of these Stevie Wonder songs that he wrote when he was really young. And then there's something always funny about like a little kid writing a song about love, which he co-wrote with his mom, I think. And so yeah. then like that song to be sung by the Beach Boys, which have their own like serious, naive energy, which, but I always screw it up. Like when, when bands have different vocalists on songs, I'm often guilty of not noticing when it's like clearly someone else, I do it with the kinks all the time. They're just like Dave, Dave songs that I didn't realize yeah. were Dave songs. And then listening back, you're like, Oh, obviously, but this, so I actually can't remember if Brian sings this one or not. It's tough to tell sometimes. Cause Hey, you know, they are related. They are one the on Davies this record too. The Wilsons. So yeah, the wild honey album that this came off of is there's, um, I mean, I, I, this album's really cool, but let's see. No, this is, um, this record has a lot of Carl on it. And this one is Carl singing lead. He sings lead on my three favorite songs on this album, which are wild honey and darling and that, but the whole, the whole record's cool and super strange. Big Dipper by Built to Spill off of There's Nothing Wrong with Love. Classic Built to Spill tune. Yeah. It's so good. This song's so good. Um, yeah, when did I, I discovered Built to Spill in college, and they're just such a fun band to discover after you've like listened to all in the college. Yeah. You know, of course. Yeah. And you'd listen to all the pavement albums and you're like, well, that's it. And you're like, yeah. it's not. <laughs> yeah, what if right. there were more guitars? <laughs> and <laughs> you're talking, you're talking to, you're talking about my college experience. Well, exactly. Right there. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I, how old are you, Tom? Uh, 33. Yeah. I'm 33 too. So, I got, yeah, I got shown pavement in high school, but even at that point it was already like they were done. So I thought I was never going to get to see them. So already I was kind of living in a, 
a near past. Um, but yeah, built to spill, especially when you're coming from pavement where you like never know what he's singing about almost all of the time. A song like Big Dipper yeah. is so great because it's just like obviously about the Big Dipper. Yeah. And the arrangement of that song is so good. They just like Build to Spill are really good with hits. Songs that have like hits and everyone hits at the same time in them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- th- I didn't think about that contrast between Pavement and Built to Spill because I remember hearing Slanted and, en- Slanted and Enchanted and I'm like, what is this? What is Stephen Malcolm singing about? You know, on any of those songs. Yeah, sometimes. and like Stephen Malcolm, he he comes off as he seems like such like an untouchably cool guy, and Doug March is such a schlub. <laughs> He's a famous, famous, yeah. famous bald rock stars, sort of yeah. set the <laughs> yeah set the path. If it wasn't for him, there'd be no Les Savvy Fav and a couple other, couple other famous bald rock bands. Yeah, I I remember. I saw Built to Spill when when I was in college, and I was pretty far up in the crowd. And I remember just kind of like counting the stains on his shirt. <laughs> Zach, were you in the opera box? Were you looking at him through your opera <laughs> opera binoculars? And... <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I, I, I mean, maybe I could have identified what sure, whether one yeah, was exactly. mustard or, or duck yeah. sauce or what but i know I, I was not in the box <laughs> with my binoculars i'm just giving you a hard time the uh <laughs> yeah i love yeah and i have a you know i have a couple couple different outer space songs on on this record on the landlady record so it felt good to pick a pick a constellation tune twice and thought that 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 made it true some brains just work that way that's what chemicals can do next up big boys by elvis costello and the attractions off of armed forces love elvis costello love this song this is a i think it's my favorite elvis costello song Cause it's just, uh, it's like everything you want all in one. A lot of his songs kind of hit lean more in one direction or more in the other. And this one seems to have all of it where it's just like melody's really great. The band sounds amazing. The like production and sounds are really good. And the lyrics and melody on it are so cool and just strange. It's, I mean, I feel like a lot of my like in, instincts about songs don't have to just be what most people think songs are came from listening to Elvis Costello records because it's just like oh this is still lodging in my brain even though it's going a bunch of different places you don't think it would I'm never on board when he goes to the circus and he seems to do that more and more in his songs he like really will hit like a circusy moment but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of circus vibes on some of, some of his songs. And it's so funny. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, British British dudes also always love to, like, take you to ragtime. They just, like, can't get yeah. enough of that. The kinks love to take you there. And it's like, all right, let me know when you're done. <laughs> let me yeah, know when you're done. when you get back from ragtime, we'll be here. Yeah, when you're we'll done, like, here. fully, like, vaudeville cosplay, then we can go back to your, like, awesome rock band. 
Yeah, Elvis Costello had some weird phases. In I don't know why. I guess he just wanted to get weird sometimes. Well, I yeah, don't, I don't necessarily get it. Well, he doesn't want to stay in one place, which I respect. But then it means you're not yeah. always going to be on board, which is fine. He doesn't yeah. care. Some of them are old by Brian Eno off of Here Come the Warm Jets. This is another one. This is another late. I think it's late in the record. Um, yeah. It's, an, it's another one that I didn't notice at first. Because, I mean, this is a life-changing album. But there's so much to get through. Right. This is the second to last song. So it's like, yeah, when you listen to... Here Come the Warm Jets the first time. It's like you really remember the first couple tracks. You really remember the Robert Fripp solo on Babies on Fire. And uh, yeah, yeah, it just takes you a while to get to the slow songs at the end, but they're maybe the best songs. There's a companion song in my... M- oh, yes. There's a song on McCartney 2 also that kind of feels really similar to this one, which is called Summer's Day. Summer's Day song. Wow, he really just was... (laughs) (laughs) Paul, come on. Summer's Day song. Come on, dude. Maybe that's funny, though. Maybe it's good. But that song is so good. Pretty late. And again, if you've like... You listen to McCartney too a bunch, you're just like, yeah, those first two songs are going to knock you over in such different ways that it's going to be kind of hard to recover. And then you get to Waterfalls and you're like, wait, is that? And then you're already overwhelmed. But uh, I'm talking about another song that wasn't on the playlist, but I think it's similar to the Eno one. Hell yeah, it sure is. <laughs> you're blown away by it. Yep. Some of them are old, some of them are new, some of them will turn up when you least expect them to, and when they do. Next, Shadows by Yola Tango. I can hear the heart beating as one. This one is super good, obviously. Yola Tango, incredible band. Um... And they're another, they are sort of the kings and queens of the instrumental interstitial song. Yes. That you love as much as the other one. Um, they're so good at vibe setting on those, you know? Yeah. You feel it very deeply, those instrumentals and those interstitials that they do. It's effortless. I, I produced a show with them at Town Hall called 
and then Yola Tango turned itself inside out. And it was Yola Tango. I was at that. That was amazing. Wasn't that an incredible night? Yeah. It was it was Yola Tango at Town Hall with eight improvisers and like an improvising ensemble and playing their songs with them. And sort of I helped produce the event and helped help them contact the improvisers and then structured who was on what songs with them and it was I mean it was very special just to get to work with them and especially to work with Roswell Rudd who has since passed and is just an incredible trombone player and everyone should seek out everything he's ever played on and we did Green Arrow the like you know maybe the quintessential Yola Tango instrumental and that song is all about this just like very beautiful and lazy slide guitar melody. And so we had Roswell play that on the trombone because it's kind of the obvious thing to do. And sometimes the obvious idea is the best oh, idea. Cool. And it was just like such a beautiful thing to hear that song with him playing that with them. How'd you get involved in producing that show? I I've been like producing improvising events for a long time i just had booked a lot of jazz shows and things in the city through my organization search and restore and then for a long time through that started co-producing the winter jazz fest in new york and through that just got to meet so many incredible players in the you know improvising community and the guy who founded the jazz festival bryce rosenblum um before I met him, he had produced all these shows at the Brooklyn Masonic Temple that I loved going to. And he just was the booker at La Poisson Rouge for a long time and just very involved in putting on creative events. And he had one of the things we did together was this concept I had called the Night of Improvised Round Robin Duets, where I would put together like a 15 person lineup from all different worlds. One person goes up, improvises for five minutes. Second person joins for five minutes. Third person comes up. The first person leaves. And it's this like continually overlapping improvised piece. Um, and we did that a bunch of times in a bunch of different ways. So he just knew I like loved doing this sort of like directed improvisation thing. And Town Hall was looking for ideas for a festival they were doing, or like a series on improv. I don't know. I don't remember how it came up exactly, but I had thought about doing this with the Ola Tango, and so pitched the idea to him, and then he pitched it to them, and it slowly but surely became a real thing. So I can hear the heart beating as one has so many great tracks on it. What, what made you pick Shadows? I looked at it, on Discogs, which is what you do when you're going to do this podcast, because I look through all your records on Discogs. And Discogs does a cool thing where they like show you who featured players are on songs. And I did not know that Jonathan Marks played trumpet on this song. Jonathan Marks is a musician in Nashville, Tennessee. Played in Lamb Chop for a long time, but so did almost yeah. everyone in Nashville. And a lot of the people who used to play in Lamb Chop now have kids, and those kids go to the the Tennessee Teens Rock Camp in Nashville, 
which is an offshoot of the Southern Girls Rock and Roll Camp, which was founded by Kelly Anderson from the band Those Darlings. And a bunch of friends of mine have worked at these camps and run the camp. And so a bunch of years ago, I started going to Nashville every summer for a week to volunteer and teach at this camp where you coach a band and you, uh, you know, teach different classes and workshops and I teach a synthesizer class and it's always just like the best and the most exhausting time because uh, kids are hard but kids are special (laughs) and it's um I just have a really wonderful community down there and Jonathan Marks has a really talented son named Abe who goes to that camp and Jonathan is a really amazing DJ he has a radio show on WXNA in Nashville, and you should listen to it. I will connect you, actually, because I think you have a lot to talk about. But he um, he's just the coolest guy and the nicest guy, and I know him mostly as a dad and a DJ and a supportive uh, fellow. So it was super cool to see him on the track list. I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a really cool connection. Wow, it's amazing. Renata Zeiger. I'm a big fan of hers. Sure. I first saw her open for Deerhoof. She, she, pl- she played a great show opening for Deerhoof, and I've been a big fan of hers ever since. After all, off of Old Ghost. Tom, I produced this album, and I picked it because I love it still. It was um, me when I started producing records at all. It was all usually close friends of mine. There's and it's also all been people who used to play in Landlady. So Renata was in the original lineup of Landlady. Um, she, the very first album, when I started writing Landlady songs, it was the first time I wrote a batch of songs before putting the band together. Every other experience I had playing my music, I would first assemble a band And then be like, all right, I have three songs. Let's learn these and practice a bunch. And then I'll slowly write more. But for whatever reason with Landlady, I wanted to like write 10 songs first, which was really fun to just think about structuring things in a different way. And it also let me think about arrangements and who could do what. And the people I knew who were going to be in it was I knew Ian Chang would play drums because he and I had already become really close musical buds and it was just a no-brainer and I wanted Renata to be in the band because we were good friends and I loved her voice and her musicality and I thought it would be really fun to write songs where we would sing a lot of them together. So the first Landlady album has like a lot of fun moments of Renata and me singing harmony and also Indigo Street, incredible guitar player. That was like having two incredible female voices to kind of exist in the stratosphere of of my own weird kid voice was really special. Um, And then Renata started writing her own songs, and they were so, so great. We did an EP together first, um, which I don't... It's on her band camp. It's cool. It's called the Horizons EP, and it's really um, very home recording-y, and I still really love that. 
And then we did, yeah, then we did Old Ghosts together at figure eight. That was done the same year as The World is a Loud Place. It was kind of like same studio, same year. We So I got really comfortable working in there. Um, but yeah, I love her very much. And she writes such incredible songs. And so sometimes she'll sit in with Landlady still for a long time. I would also play keys in her band and kind of jump in whenever it makes sense to do that. Um, and yeah, I love this oh, song. Nice. So I wonder if you were playing keys at that show. I wasn't. Opening for Deer Hunt. I wasn't. I, she maybe asked me to and I couldn't because I would have never said no because I love Deer Hoof so much. Um, but I was not at that show. I wasn't there at all. So I must have had to be somewhere else because otherwise I would have definitely come yeah. as a fan. The final Deer Hoof connection is... In uh, Pumpkin, the Halloween musical radio play, last year, I had some joke in the script that there there's a play within the play. There's a sort of failed musical. And at some point, someone is dancing to like a version of the Monster Mash. I can't remember if I said it was in Japanese already, but at some point last year, I just had the like obvious realization that it should be Deerhoof who does it. And so I wrote yeah. to them because I've gotten to know them over the years and it's, you know, they say don't meet your heroes and I think that is often true unless it's Deerhoof and then do Deerhoof. meet Deerhoof. But they, yeah, I've they seem like very nice people. Un, unreasonably nice. Um and we I uh I pr produced another show with them actually for the Winter Jazz Festival where it was them plus Wadada, Leo Smith. Um, that one I was pretty, I was very hands-off, just tried to make sure it could happen. But that's another incredible night of a band welcoming an improviser from a different world into their orbit. Um, and that came out as a record last year, I think. So everyone should check out that Deerhoof and Wadada Leo Smith live album because it was really very cool. But the end of this rant is that they recorded a version of the Monster Mash for me and sent it over. I said I would bill it as Fear Hoof. <laughs> and that's on, there's a band camp called Pumpkin Special Features. I think I have a label called Landlady Land. And if you go to like Landlady Land label.bandcamp.com, there's lots of ways to find it. But you can find a bunch of the things I'm talking about, including the, um, but you can find the uh, Pumpkin Special Features album, and that is like the soundtrack. And you can just buy Deerhoof's Monster Mash, which sounds nothing like the Monster Mash you know and love, which is what makes it uh, so incredible. Kevin Ayers, Banana Moore, song, Don't Let It Get You Down. Big fan of Kevin Ayers stuff and related Canterbury scene, shit like that. Yeah. He is amazing. 
And I think I first found out about him when I was on tour playing in Man Man. He died. And one of the band members yeah. at the time was a big fan of his and a big fan of Soft Machine. And so we covered, uh, we did it again during, I think we covered it during another song. It was like we had a song, we transitioned into the Soft Machine, we did it again, did that, you know, forever, and then transitioned out of it. And then through him, I found, yeah, just all the, Kevin Ayers records, which I did buy on CD at one point, because a bunch of them aren't on streaming. And there was some like, there's this weird world of like box sets that aren't box sets, but you can sometimes find like three Nina Simone albums for $20 in one CD set. And this was like five Kevin Ayers records for 30 bucks or something. And then now I steal for sure. And now I listen to them, you know, there's not a lot of cell service where I live now. So I've been listening to them a bunch in the car. And and I saw that on your list. I was like, I was just jamming out to this song. Yeah. I got into Kevin Ayers basically through my uncle because he had a big record collection and he passed away in 2005. And then there's all this stuff that I didn't know related to the soft machine this other band like called gong sure and this guy david allen and kevin Ayers. they're all kind of like related i guess they're all from a part of the canterbury scene in the uk so it's all just like insane trippy psych jazz fusion shit so it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, it definitely also, like, he'll definitely go circus. He'll definitely go ragtime. But he, yeah. like, it's, yeah, it's different. It There's a lot of amazing things. And each record he makes is really different. Um, I, I think this is maybe one of the cleaner ones. So many problems, yet none at all. So many windows through every. So many feelings you won't express So many failures you call success Roberta Flack, Our Ages or Our Hearts Mm -hmm. off of First Take Her first record, which was just reissued But instead of getting the reissue, I got a used copy of the record. Yeah, that's good. Pretty recently. That's good. Make sure <laughs> make sure the estate doesn't get any more money. That's good. I <laughs> I um Oh no, Roberta Flack's alive. Maybe she'll actually get the money. Um probably not. <laughs> probably not. The world sucks. She last year yeah. last year I was you know, listening to so much music cuz I was sitting around all the time. And I started listening to a bunch of artists just like in order of their discography. And so I did it with Earth, Wind and Fire. That was an amazing one to do because they really have never, they've never made a bad album. And there's so many jams you don't know about, which happens a lot with artists who have like such strong hits that you have to like kind of keep, keep digging back and back again and again to like get settled into everything they've done because it's always good but i did that with roberta flack i'd been a donny hathaway fan for a long time and then they're so connected in so many ways and it was 
really wonderful to just listen to her records in order. They're always really slow, which is such a cool thing to commit to. I thought we had a love that was true. A love shared between me and you. Kate Laban next. Duke off of Mug Museum. I um I I kind of think like really great records don't happen that much anymore. <laughs> I'm like a big uh I'm a big snob and a big fan of like the things I heard growing up and you know, you just like things rock your world at a certain time and eventually albums stop giving you that feeling and you begin to become a little hardened. And then every yeah. so often another album comes out where you're like, Oh shit, it happened again. Oh shit. Yeah. And it happened with mug museum, this Kate LeBon record. And then it happened with the Andy Schauf album, the party. Where I was like, oh, amazing. Like, it can still happen. Great record, too. Oh, I mean, perfect. And, like, special in a way that, like, I, you know. And I think it's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to make an incredible album that makes me feel the way, you know, Kill the Moonlight did or, you, you know, Young Liars EP or any of these things, any of this in indie snobbery or cookie, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, Return <laughs> to Crooked Rain, Mountain. Yeah. It's all, uh, I just, as back to pavement talk, in, well, you know, I listened to Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain again recently and was like, yeah, this is still the very best thing ever made. And then only at that moment realized that it was, like almost definitely a Prince joke and then looked it up and found out that it was. And I kind of couldn't believe you're right. I'd never thought of that <laughs> until you just said that. Wow. You just think it's some pavement bullshit where you're like, Hey, he did it twice yeah. and he's smarter than me. So like, there's some reason why he did it twice, but it's obviously purple rain, purple rain. And then I found some damn. interview where he says it. And I'm like, ah, damn. Steven, Damn. Steven. Dropping some knowledge. Shit. I didn't mean to. Damn. I figured you yeah. knew. You're the one with all the records. <laughs> no. Now I know. Now Zach knows, too. We both know. Yeah, well, we should burn the master tapes of this recording. Last but not least, uh, Harlem Air Shaft by Duke Ellington off of the Blayton Webster band. Getting jazzy. I yeah, I still I think maybe Duke Ellington is still the like most underrated genius of all time. I feel like everything he did for and within music is like unprecedented before or after and. Part of it is, again, because there's so much there. 
So people often just have their like one reference point and it's usually going to be mood indigo. But even then, if you like re-examine a song like that, it's fucking brilliant. Um, yeah, there's just so much unbelievable Duke Ellington out there and it is all good and it is all worth everyone's time. But I recently heard this song and loved it. And I wanted to put a Duke Ellington song after the Kate LeBond song, Duke, because I thought it would be cute. Yeah, and it is. And I was right. Very. I was right. Very cute. Um, There is Duke Ellington made a bunch of albums called the Sacred Concert. There's three of them. Concert of Sacred Music, Second Sacred Concert, Third Sacred Concert. And you can get them all... There's definitely collections of them, but it's a really cool, really cool music. It's like, yeah, it's really, 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 really good. All right, Adam, so great having you on Look at My Records today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for coming. Zach. Thanks for having me. Zach, you were awesome co-host. So fun. So fun. So fun. Everyone, read Zach's review of Landlady's new record at lookatmyrecords.com. And then while you're there and processing the review... You could click the link through to landlady.bandcamp.com where you can get this awesome album on mm-hmm. vinyl. And I'll mail it to you. I'll mail it to you. From That's Vermont. the thing. Yeah, yeah you got to give, give me your money, but I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's cool. What kind of LP mailers do you have? I got these, so <laughs> I will shout out my my bass player, Click. That's the sound of everyone uh, <laughs> slamming their computer shut because you asked the most boring question <laughs> in history. My uh, bass player, Ryan, Ryan Dugray. Well, it's, it's pronounced Dugree. Actually, everyone says it wrong, and that's fine. He doesn't have to correct him. I will. He has a brand new album out that's really, really good. Um, it is. It's very good. What's it called? Three Rivers? Yeah. His, yes. la- his one before that called The Humors is also good. Every member of Landlady, present and past, has made like amazing records under their own name. So I highly recommend you check them all out. But Ryan Dugree's album Three Rivers came out earlier this year, and it's super great instrumental music. Um, just like awesome guitar and weird piano stuff. I It's kind of tough to describe, so yeah. I think you should just get it. But I bought it, and it came to me in the mail, and so as I was getting ready to order my mailers, I asked him what he did. And it is a company called Bags Unlimited. A shout-out to Bags yeah, Unlimited. It's important to get the right LP mailers. <laughs> you know, some of them not so good, you know? No, I I bought a hundred yeah. of them, and then ran out today. 
which is great. It means people are buying the album. But I had a couple other orders to fulfill, and I had like five of these really old mailers that I had. And so click, everyone really hung up now. <laughs> I, um, but they were so much shittier. And it's ultimately economy of motion. It's like they, you have to fold them in on all sides and then tape it around. And these these bags, unlimited ones, they like have an adhesive strip. It all folds up real clean. You don't think about it till you have to do like fifty of them in a day, and you really you really appreciate the kind of a box architecture, which sounds like a pavement. Yeah, it's, song. it's close. It's pretty close. Box elder, more or less, is the song. Mm-hmm. And then. Than the architecture song. There's grave one on architecture. A slanted, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. See? I know. Adam, thanks so much. Everyone get the new landlady record. Tom, you said you were gonna you said you were gonna ask me about what's next and instead oh, yeah. we just <laughs> talked about LP mailers. And I think that's great. No, but I will because that's all that that's all that's next. No, there's nothing next. <laughs> who has anything next? Everyone's like, Are you gonna do a tour? I'm like, who fucking knows? How? I'm not booking that yet. I don't know what to do. But I do know that if you buy the record, I'm gonna put it in a great box and I'm gonna send it to you. And that's all there is to talk about. Well have me back. We'll talk about more mailers. Thank you. There's going to be good stuff next for Landlady. I know. I know. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Zach. Thank you both. And we're going to close with one more song from the record. This is called Supernova. We can't see, we can't